Well, who are the Hare Krishnas? You might think of them in terms of chanting in the streets, fundraising at airports, saffron robes, these kinds of things. But they are much, much more. They recently celebrated their 50th anniversary with the International Society of Krishna Consciousness. In this episode, we're going to explore the history, the beliefs, the practices, the, the culture of the Hare Krishnas and ISKCON. We hope you'll join us. This is the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as my guest, Anutama Dasa, and I'll read a little bit of his bio. He is the Minister of Communications for the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, ISKCON, and he's been a member of ISKCON since 1975. Doesn't look like it, doesn't look that old, but that is the truth. He has served as a member of ISKCON's Governing Body Commission since 1999, uh, he currently oversees ISKCON temples in the eastern and midwestern United States, and he also serves on the board of ISKCON's international headquarters in, is it Mayapur? That's it. That's wow, right. Wow, I got one. West Bengal, the Board of uh, Religions for Peace, the Advisory Council of the Religious Freedom Institute, and former board member and vice president of the Religion Communicators Council. He is a busy man. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. I'm really happy to be here. Is there, is there anything you want to add to that bio that folks should know about you? No, I think they're probably getting bored by the length of the, what you said already. So okay. we, <laughs> well, I will put, uh, I'll put uh, the, the full bio in the program notes and some other things so folks uh, can seek you out. But the way uh, this podcast came together, you and I were talking before we started recording, and uh, I come from the evangelical Christian community. And many years ago, I was doing the what's called countercult apologetics approach. And uh, one of the notables in that movement was the late Walter Martin. He had a book called The New Cults, and he considered the Hare Krishnas uh, a cult group. But I recently saw an article in Religion News Service, uh, which talked about uh, how ISKCON has gained respectability, the changes that have taken place over the years. And I thought it would be great to reach out and have a conversation to learn more and find out more about ISKCON, and I, I reached out to uh, our fellow friend Fred Stella, who's been a guest on this program a couple of times before, and uh, he connected us. So this is going to be a great conversation. Now, you sent me a very helpful magazine called The Hare Krishna's Celebrating 50 Years, and folks will find a link to that in the program notes as well. And we're going to kind of use it as a, an outline to, to guide it. We're not locked into it, but it'll be helpful to kind of uh, outline our conversation. But before we get into that, can you share your spiritual journey? How did you come to embrace this spirituality? Okay, yeah, great. And then thanks again, John, for having me on, on your program. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I was raised in uh, uh, kind of a typical uh, secular 1950s, 1960s family. I grew up in, outside Detroit and uh, went to University of Michigan and Michigan State, both for, for a couple of years at Michigan State and, and one semester at University of Michigan. And I was very much, um, I went to a Christian church camp for 12 years, a Presbyterian church camp. That was probably where most of my religious exposure was. 
And I was pretty much as a young person kind of turned off by religion in the sense I felt that uh, the world was full of so many problems. This was early 70s, um, just missed being drafted to go to Vietnam. So I was very aware of what was happening during that social milieu and very much concerned about a lot of the social problems are getting highlighted in them those days in terms of the environmental crisis was just kind of scratching the surface and women's rights and civil rights and all those different kind of things. And of course, you know, global war threats in Vietnam. And, and it's kind of a long story, but it just led me to really look for some deeper answers. I felt when I went to university, I remember thinking, I'm going to go to college and really learn the answers to all the problems in life. And I was a little shocked at how the experts didn't agree. Nobody seemed to agree. We'd have one guest lecture come this week and say, here's how you, you know, raise the taxes and do this and do that. You're going to solve all the inner city problems. Then the next week, another expert would come and say, that doesn't work. And here's why it doesn't work. And then um, one thing led to the next. I got involved in student politics. And I found that very frustrating because even at that level, frankly, I found there was, a, a, you know, I, corruption is a strong word. But even at that level, there was a lot of selfishness and self-motivation. And I was just kind of become frustrated by things all the way around. I started taking philosophy classes. Maybe there's some answer here. I was studying political science to try to figure how do we organize society in a way that's actually going to be fair and just and promote the common good. And um, the last, uh, my very best professor, remember, I had a conversation with him one time and I said, you know, these, these people were studying John Locke and Marx and Hobbes and Rousseau and even nasty people like Machiavelli, they all have their ideas how to organize society. But I noticed each one of them had a kind of set of assumptions in the beginning of their books. You know, Marx had the idea that human history is based on class warfare and therefore a communist system. And Locke had the idea we're all independent actors and we entered social contracts just because we kind of had to. And therefore society should be designed like this. So I asked my professor, so we really should study the truth of these assumptions. Otherwise, what good are these theories if their assumptions aren't right? And his response to me was, we're not here to study truth. And I was thinking, well, you know, why am I paying you all this money every year if you're not even sure if anything that we're studying is true yourself? In one sense, a little idealistic, but I think from a spiritual perspective, you know, talking to a, a crowd of people who may be largely interested in spirituality, it made a lot of sense. So that kind of led to like a lot of search. I started to go to Zen Buddhist clinics, you know, re re retreats. I started going to a Methodist church every Sunday and would have meetings with the minister and ask him questions. In those days, they're what they called Jesus freaks, hanging around on campus. I'd go and sit and talk with them for a few hours. I'd go hang out with the Hare Krishnas for a few hours. And I became convinced that there's a common undercurrent in all of these messages. There really is a higher purpose in life, you know, that wasn't that Christianity was completely opposed to Buddhism or the Hare Krishna was totally out of sync with the, with the Jews or Jesus or whatever, and that there was an underlying theme. And then that I gradually, you know, I became a vegetarian because I felt that was probably the right way to go. And as I mentioned, started going to all these different spiritual retreats. And then I actually left school. I traveled around the country for a few months with the idea that I, I really need to try to find God and eventually moved into a Krishna temple just to kind of experiment with it with a little bit for, for a few weeks. And at the end of a couple of weeks, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to stay here unless I find out one of two things, either it's wrong or there's something better. And that was about 45 years ago. I'm, I don't live right in a temple ashram. Now I'm a congregational member, but you know, that was, that was what got me going. And I, I deeply believe in my tradition teaches that the purpose of life is to connect with God. 
and then everything else is, is, is secondary and uh, everyone should do that, whether as a Christian or as a Muslim or as a Jew or as a Buddhist or Hindu, that that's the most important thing in life. So that's kind of how I got to what I'm doing now. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I think sometimes, uh, particularly for Christians, we uh, so get into doctrine and worldview that it becomes abstract. And I appreciate you sharing that the personal story, uh, everyone has a journey that they're on. And I like hearing from yours. Now, the beginnings of ISKCON go back to the 1960s and, and the counterculture as a Swami comes from India. Can you talk about the origins of ISKCON? Yeah, actually, that's, that's, that's the recent origins of the organization. So to okay. go back historically, you know, I mean, our tradition is based on the Bhagavad Gita, which is like our sacred text. It's the third most popular sacred text behind the Bible, the Quran in the world, and literally means the song of God. So that's the recorded words. We believe historically recorded words of Krishna, which is a name for God. And uh, it teaches all kinds of different processes of, of yoga and meditation and kind of presents a whole worldview. And then the end of the book says, hey, the, the ultimate goal is to, to be, good, be a devotee of God, surrender to God. So, so we trace our roots there. And then in the 16th century, interesting, because kind of parallel to some of the the reformation that went on within the Christian churches at that around that same time, there was a great saint uh, called Chaitanya, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who emphasized the devotional or the bhakti tradition. And really scholars say kind of started a, a whole kind of a spiritual revolution within India itself, focusing, getting away from kind of the rituals and some of the things that were happening in Europe at the same time, you know, the, the religious powers of the church, you know, had the authority. You could only approach God through the church. It was very ritualistic, very dogmatic, uh, you know, class conscious and all of that. And if you weren't in the right family, in the right place, the right amount of money, you know, selling um, indulgences and those kind of things in Europe. So it didn't manifest the same way in India, but there were parallels. So Chaitanya was a big reformer to bring about an emphasis of, no, God is available to everyone. And, and he kind of took out, took into the streets, you could say, his teaching and his preaching. And, you know, he's a whole interesting historical character. From that, um, my, my teacher, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, he came to America in 1965 under the instructions of his teacher, coming in this line from Krishna to Chaitanya and then down through different uh, uh, heads of the, uh, the organization, the community. He was asked by his teacher, please spread these teachings of Krishna around the world, particularly in, in the West and English speaking languages. So at the age of 70, without any institutional support whatsoever, he got on the, he got a, a free passage on, on, a, on, a, on a, a freight ship. Uh, he, he translated three volumes of, of what are our, in addition to the Bhagavad Gita, there's another scripture called the Bhagavad Purana. He translated three volumes of that and had it published in English thought that was his gift that he really now he was prepared to come to the West and he came uh, he came to America and that that's a whole very interesting history there but he first landed in in, in well he landed in New York we went to Butler Pennsylvania lived with a the family there for about 30 days kind of studying a little bit how do things work in America and then uh, it transferred to New York City Lower East Side and uh, lived with uh, a Swami of another order for some period of time, just a month or two, and then just kind of started his own mission. And uh, from there, it took off. Now, here's a, it's a simple question, but it's uh, a lot to unpack. Well, 
you know, uh, I, I think in the past, Hare Krishnas, there was a stereotype. They were known for chanting, uh, fundraising at airports and these kinds of things. But there's a lot more to the Hare Krishnas than that. What are the, some of the beliefs and practices of the Hare Krishnas? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually very deep philosophy. Um, it's a very philosophical tradition. So it's, some of the core beliefs are, first and foremost, that, that God is a person. God is, God is not just a thing or an energy, as some traditions speak, but we believe God is the, we use this term, the supreme personality of Godhead. I think God is a term that is used in Christianity sometimes, if I'm correct. So we believe God is the supreme, like we're all persons, John's a person, Anutam is a person, my wife's a person, my grandkids are persons. So we're all persons, but, but God is the supreme person. We're all individual, Atma is the Sanskrit word, which means soul. We're individual spiritual beings. We have an eternal relationship with God, the Father, or in Sanskrit, it's Krishna, Hare Krishna means God. Krishna is a, a name of God, means all attractive. We have an eternal relationship with God, and we've forgotten that relationship with him. Therefore, as I believe my, our Christian friends say, we're now separated from God, and this life is an opportunity to reconnect with God. And kind of the Eastern concept come in. I comes in. I don't think this is so much developed in, 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 in Western theologies. Well, maybe, maybe there's some parallel with the devil. There's this concept of maya, which means forgetfulness or illusion. So under illusion, under forgetfulness of God, I think I can be happy in this world with money and power and fame and, you know, beauty. And I got a handsome husband or a beautiful wife or a big house on the lake and that these things will make me happy. But our tradition teaches, no, they can't uh, because we're spiritual. We need, we need spiritual solutions to life's problems. And while we can live comfortably in this life, we should. We should simplify our, our lives. You know, you don't need a new car every year. You don't need the newest smartphone. You know, maybe you can use the old one for a few more years, despite what the ads tell us that bombard us every single day of our lives. Uh, so we should try to simple, simplify our lives, sometimes uh, Swami Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada, he would say simple living, high thinking. So we should try to simplify our lives and focus more of attention to understanding our relationship with God. So these are the main concepts. But different uh, from Christianity uh, as it's understood today or as our traditions understood today, we believe that the soul is eternal. And in the sense that if we, if we don't surrender to God in this life, that there is, we come back again. We're not the body. You know, I've got a male white body born in America this time around. Maybe next time I'll be a, a woman, black woman in Africa, et cetera. We don't know where we came from, where we're going. But because we've rebelled against God, our tradition teaches we, we, we reincarnate or the soul will again take another body until we connect with God. And um, could be a long time or could be short time, depending on how we use our free will. So those are some of the basics. The chanting comes in because the chanting is, is, is a prayer. We chant what's called the Maha Mantra. It's very short, just Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, which really is a, is a prayer that's often translated as, Oh, my Lord, oh, energy of the Lord, please engage me in your service. So it's a call to God, please engage me in your service. Please let me reconnect myself with you, Chad. Help me stop thinking I'm a big guy in the company or I'm, uh, you know, the richest guy in the block. I want to understand that I'm, I'm your servant and I want to reconnect with you. So the chanting, when you see Christian devotees chanting in public, um, 
it's because we believe that that sound vibration of God's name actually helps people awaken their connection with Krishna. So even if people aren't aware of the meaning or, you know, some people love it, some people think it's funny, some people don't like it, but we believe that that chanting itself is actually, it's good for me and it's good for others. So that's why we do it. Well, in addition to the chanting, what would some other important practices be? If it's possible, what, what does the day, average daily life of a Krishna devotee, what would that look like? Well, of course, it would depend. Most of our members now are, are living, a, you know, are congregational members. So like myself, I'm about 25 minutes from the closest temple. Um, so I can describe, you know, my life. I, um, of course, and I, I'm, I'm like, you know, working for the institution. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of retired now, so I'm not in salary or anything. I'm, I'm a volunteer. But um, so let's say somebody, some people, a minority people might live like in a, in, in a temple in a monastic environment. So for those people, they will do those first. They would get up very early in the morning. Our first worship services at our temple are usually at 4.30, maybe 5 a.m. So there's a worship service in the temple, goes for about 45 minutes, and then there's individual what we call japa chanting. So we not only chant the Hare Krishna mantra uh, publicly, as, as you referenced, we also uh, chant, I think similar to Catholics and Muslims and Buddhists also, they, they chant on prayer beads. So we also use prayer beads, and uh, we recite that same mantra with this meditation, oh, my Lord, oh, energy of the Lord, please engage in your service. So we do that for up to about an hour and a half or two hours a day. Uh, generally, like myself, I don't watch television. Uh, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I save a lot of time from other things, and I spend more time trying to meditate on God's name. And I think a parallel within the Christian tradition, you know, what, once, hallowed is thy name. You know, I think the Psalms talks about you should glorify God with symbols and harp. So, you know, when we're on the street and people, what are these crazy people doing playing symbols? Well, we're glorifying God and symbols. We don't do harps, but uh, we do other instruments. So, so in the morning, we have that with that morning program, we end with it with a scripture class. Uh, so usually the early morning hours from around 4.30 to 8 o'clock for those that live right in the temple ashram would, would be like, totally focused on the, on their spiritual practice. And then during the day, they would be doing different things, visiting members of the community. Um, you know, some people involved in management or teaching or maintaining the temple, those kind of things. For most of us like that are congregational members, we would have kind of a condensed uh, spiritual practice every morning. We still would chant, chant on our beads, our prayer beads for an hour and a half to two hours every day, early in the morning before everybody gets up and starts disturbing the, everybody around you. And then we do some reading and, and then, you know, go to work, whether, you know, a taxi driver or a doctor or a teacher or, 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 or like that. Um, and then depending on time, um, you know, maybe, again, some little spiritual practice in the evening, but then come to the temple on, on, on the weekends. Definitely sun, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoons kind of become our main day, although historically in the tradition, you, you, there's no one day you go to temple every day. But because of just the, the modern day demands of Monday through Friday. Uh, most people, their their community or their congregational worship day is primarily on a Sunday. Although some people get together with with families on a like on a Friday night, like you might have like a, a Friday night Bible class together with your friends or something like that. Now we were talking before we started recording about uh, discussing some significant uh, or unique elements of the Krishna's as it distinguishes itself from other expressions of Hinduism. It's monotheistic. Can you talk about some of those unique aspects and where does 
the Hare Krishna movement fit within broader Hinduism? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Well, Hinduism in itself, it, it's really kind of like a family of faiths or an umbrella of faiths. And sometimes I think like, say within Christian, well, let's say there's the Abrahamic faiths who, who all are, 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 you know, coming to have certain similarities in their background, certainly, you know, roots to Abraham. And, you know, the, the Jewish people would study the Old Testament. I'm not sure the proper term, but whatever, that part of the Testament, you know, and the Christians have the New, the New Testament. So similarities there within those faiths, but definitely some, some, you know, some significant differences. So Hare Krishna is actually part of what's called Vaishnavism. If you do, somebody's do a little study within the broad variety of, of Hindu traditions, uh, Vaishnavism, many scholars say it's, it's the prominent one. We are like Gaudiya Vaishnavas. It's kind of like being whatever Southern Baptists within Baptists, within Protestants, within Christians, you know, kind of like that. So we are uh, members of the Gaudiya Vaishnav tradition, which means particularly we're followers of Chaitanya, who I mentioned uh, earlier, the uh, 16th century saint. And we particularly, Vaishnavs in general, are, are, are stress the concept of monotheism. God is a, is, is a person. We have a personal relationship with him. And the goal of life is to serve God and, and to connect with God. There are other Hindu traditions who would advocate when one practices a, a spiritual life and, 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 and kind of awakens their spiritual identity, whereas we would say that identity is we're servants of God, some other Hindus say, well, no, actually you are God. You're, 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 you, you merge into God. And they give the example like a drop of water merges into the ocean. But eventually, you, but we, <clears throat> we don't agree with that. <laughs> we, we love our, our brothers and sisters of other Hindu traditions. But philosophically, we kind of find that actually a little offensive to God. Because God is great. I'm small to say that I can become God. Uh, we we find it's uh, it, it it's it's not the ultimate teachings of the scripture, and um, it's not. Uh, we say ultimately it can't satisfy the soul. The soul's looking to love God. It's like if you say you love your wife, you don't want to become your wife. You know you want, you love your kids, you don't want to become your kids. You want to love your kids. So the fact that there's two, there can be love without without two personalities. So we we don't want to merge into God, even if we could. We we want to. We want to serve God. You mentioned, uh, you know, all religions have diversity within the tradition. And, and certainly we've got it within Christianity. And we always haven't done a good job of playing together well through our differences. Sometimes we do, but there's been a lot of rancor. And, and even I remember in seminary taking courses in church history and uh, just being appalled by the spilled blood and the violence over different disagreements over things like baptism and so on. How are the disagreements between the Krishna movement and other Hindu? Is that usually handled fairly well, or can it be cantankerous within your tradition as well? Well, I'm not a historian, so I can't say for sure. I don't think there has been historically as much, as you said, bloodletting and things right. like that. But I, I know there's been some, uh, but not quite to that extent, because there is a very... <clears throat> powerful kind of undercurrent in all Hindu traditions that everyone is a spiritual being, has an eternal connection with the divine, however they see that. And there's so that there's there's more of, I think, an openness, historically it has been, to 
you pursue God as you understand the divine or him to be. I'm on my particular path. So you, you can see that in, in, in you know, in India today, I don't know, is that a good reflection of, of, of the culture that's questionable? I mean, is America today a good representative of Christianity? That's a good question. But, you know, historically, you know, Jews way back centuries ago went to India because it was more open-minded and broad-minded. And there, there, is, there is a history of, of, much, of, of a high degree of religious tolerance that, that comes about from the tradition and this idea that it's not like there's one life and our truth is the only truth and you have to accept it uh, within Vaishnavism. Um, and and I, I mentioned before we started the show, we've done many years of Vaishnava Christian dialogue because we generally feel we, we, we can and should learn from each other. And that kind of in that, in that spirit, we should keep an open mind towards other traditions because we can always learn something. There, there's one teacher centuries ago that said, uh, you should take gold even from a filthy place and you should take good instructions wherever you find it. You know, and he said, even from a fool. You know, so even if you think somebody's foolish, you, know, you may not like the Hare Krishnas, but if they've got one or two good ideas, why not take it on board? And, you know, we, we, we may be strong believers in God, but, you know, there's, I have some atheistic and, and, and agnostic friends. They've got some good ideas. Well, I, I should take those and add that to my life as well. Well, you mentioned dialogue. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how uh, ISKCON has been involved in, in interfaith dialogue? Yes, yes, happy to. Um, that's actually something I've been fortunate enough to participate in. We started, I think, the first official kind of formal dialogue was held, a Vaishnava Christian dialogue was held in, in England, in UK and Wales, actually. And then starting, I think, 1996, we held the first Vaishnava Christian dialogue in the States, a formal kind of a thing. And we, we organized around a, a two-day retreat. And we would choose a topic and we would have papers written by a Christian representative and a Vaishnava representative. And we've, we've tried to make a point of having, because there are actually four primary Vaishnava traditions. So we would have a little bit of variety from who's presenting from the Vaishnava side. And one year a Protestant would present the paper from the Christian side and one year a Catholic. And we would choose topics like the name of God or the kingdom of God. Or, or one year we chose, um, it was nice, my favorite year, spirit in the world, um, renunciation or affirmation. Because both, I think, in Christian traditions and in the Vaishnav traditions, there's a little bit of a challenge. You know, like a little bit, I know, you know, Jesus, Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. But that one person came and said, well, I want to be your father, but I have to go bury my father. And he's not worthy. So, you know, there's some like, wow, what does that mean? How do we understand that? How do we apply that to modern life? So there's some tension also in the, in the Vaishnav tradition, you know, that the world is, uh, we should renounce the desire to enjoy the world separately from God, but that doesn't mean we don't care about the world and the people in it and how to live properly. So those are some things that can be misunderstood. So we've had these dialogues now for 25, 25 years. And uh, I started a similar thing in India a few years ago, Vaishnava Christian Dialogue in India. And because of COVID, we've had to do it online the last couple of years. But what's, what's really uh, wonderful, amazing, I, is that um, 
this group of people have developed a real strong, it's about 20 people both times, 10, 12 people from, you know, both, both, both sides of the dialogue. I keep going like that. Cause it means like quote, you know? <laughs> people wondering, what am I doing? Batting flies. And that, that's, and, um, you know, as an example, the first year we did it in India, there was, um, one of the women, Vaishnav women who I work with closely is based in, in Mumbai, in Bombay. She's the uh, communications director for West India. And we had a, one of the Catholic participants was a woman named Sister Teresa, not Mother Teresa, but Sister Teresa. So my colleague Parijata was seen on the list of people, well, Teresa, and she was very, she kept asking me, who's this Teresa? So I don't really know her. She was recommended by a bishop and, you know, she's coming. But when she came, the two of them realized that Parijata was a former student of Teresa in a Catholic school and had actually gone to a Catholic school her entire life in India. And Teresa was one of her, I don't remember what year, but she was a, one of her teachers, maybe for a few years, who she had tremendous affection for. She remembered her. So in the process of this dialogue, Parijata said, well, I want to take a minute and thank my particularly Catholics, and she happened to go to Catholic school, thank my Christian friends, because I went to the Catholic school, and I really felt it rooted me deeply in a spirituality and a quest to understand and serve God. And then somebody, I knew she was going to say that, but then somebody else who was like a, a, a renounced monk, a Swami in, in the Hare Krishnas or ISKCON, he said, well, I should also, you know, spontaneously, I didn't expect this. He said, well, I should also want to thank all of the, my Catholic, because I also went to Catholic school for 12 years. And then there was a third person who said, well, my wife went to Catholic school. So I was just thinking, actually, how beautiful it is that these people who are raised in Hindu families, perhaps Vaishnava families, and dedicated their lives. These were seriously committed ISKCON Krishna devotees, but their lives have been enriched by what they learned in the Christian schools. And I think also that time, you know, sometimes there's some friction, some some criticism sometimes, you know, what's the purpose of these religious schools? We also, you know, we feed a ton, we feed a 1.2 million children in India every day. And I'm through our Hare Krishna Food for Life and Hare Krishna Food Relief Promise. I'm really proud when I see a video when they've got a Muslim principal saying how we're, we're feeding kids at a, a Muslim school, at a Christian school, or this or that, that we can help each other. So in the same way that that this this woman and these these men had this experience to say, they, and they're very serious practitioners of the Vaishnava faith, but it was enriched by their foundation what they got. Uh, you know, it was obviously their parents took them to the temple and this and that, but but they enriched them. And and I think that's really the beauty of of interfaith dialogue. That when I come away from a dialogue, and I've said this in our dialogues, when I walk away from a dialogue with our Christians because they're very serious people and very open people, and very honest people, and very faithful people. When I walk away from the dialogue, I, I really feel my faith in Krishna is enriched by hearing them talk about their faith in Jesus, and the challenges that, that, that they face in, in trying to be Christians, and a very, you know, <laughs> it's not much of, I mean, it's not much of a Christian world these days in terms of people practicing real, genuine religiosity, not as a criticism of Christianity, just criticism of this crazy materialistic world we're living in these days. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's okay to have a criticism. I'm many times critical of my own tribe. So uh, <laughs> that's important. Yeah, I one, of things, one of the things we share in our dialogues is criticism of our own tribes. You yeah. know? None of us has it completely right. And uh, 
somebody says they do, those, those are people I get scared about personally. <laughs> I've got a couple of questions related to uh, your culture, your cultural expressions. Uh, what is the significance of temples and festivals? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, temples, if we do temples first, I mean, uh, we understand Chaitanya particularly emphasized that we need to come together in community, or it's called Sankirtan. We need to congregationally chant about God and hear about God and serve God and learn about God. And, and that, that idea of community is very, very important to us. So temple is a place where we come together to try to do those things. You know, like at our Sunday program, we, we share food. We're vegetarian. We share a wonderful, very tasty vegetarian feast that's prepared for everybody, anybody and everybody that comes, you know, members of the community, visitors, first timers. We, we serve a, a big meal. We do some singing together. Um, I think not unlike some Christian traditions that have some pretty vibrant uh, singing in church and people get enthused by that. And we'll have a, you know, a talk on one of our scriptures, either Bhagavad Gita or, or the Bhagavatam and um, have a real sense of community. So the temple is there primarily as a place to build a sense of community. And then festivals are really important to us. And there's about, I think we don't have an exact number. We don't, not so good at keeping count of things as some traditions are. With approximately 600, 650 temples around the world now. ISKCON temples. And again, this is all coming from Swami Prabhupada, who, who came to America in 1965. So, you know, pretty significant growth. There's thousands of temples of Krishna in India, but ones that are particularly part of our organization, about 650. And then festivals. Um, well, just, just to mention, like the idea of temple, there are other, other Hindu traditions. You, sometimes you have this kind of idea of the lone sadhu, saintly person, like a desert father in the early years of Christianity, goes off into the wilderness and meditates and prays by himself. So there are lineages that teach like that. Ours is different. Ours is stay wherever you are. If you're married, fine. If you got a job, fine. Just put God in the center of what you do. So therefore, temples, most of our temples are in cities. Some are in rural areas. We're also creating so many eco farms that's another topic and then festivals are a big thing because we practice bhakti yoga which means the yoga of devotion um what all that you do krishna says in the bhagavad gita all that you do all that you eat all that you offer and give away as well as any austerities or sacrifices you may perform when you give of yourself for some other purpose it says do that as an offering to me so whatever we do in life we should try to dedicate to god so it's a very happy, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really joyful tradition. I was just at a men's retreat in West Virginia for three days. And it's just being with a bunch of guys and talking about how to be better men and how to be better husbands. We had a whole panel on fatherhood and watched, you know, grown men cry about what it means to have a baby. When that baby first came into the world, how, what, you know, the challenges that they face trying to be, what does it mean to be a father and, and to really, you know, this person is not in the world to fulfill the things I wanted to do but I'm here to try to help them be what they can be. Those types of things. We had a whole panel on toxic masculinity, which is definitely not just a Hare Krishna thing. You know, it's a problem for men all around the world. You know, we, we sometimes misuse our power with women. So we wanted to talk, but then, you know, we spent hours, we had a big bonfire and we told stories and, and, you know, had some really wonderful meals together and, and sang and danced together, which is probably the most fun part. Again, singing our prayers to, to, to God. Um, so these festivals are similar to that. It's a big part of what we do. It's kind of like I, I've read some things about like 
the black church and particularly, I don't know if this still continues. I mean, Sunday wasn't just an hour in church. It's like the whole day, right? And you come and you go to church and you sing and you talk and you preach and you amen. And, and then you go outside and you play games with the kids and have, you know, have a meal, have a lunch. And, you know, it's a whole community thing. So festivals are like that. So some of the big festivals we've drawn from, um, from India, there's one called the Festival of the Giant Chariots or Rathiyatra. And um, this is something that's a big chariot, it's about 40 feet high, it's beautifully colored, red, yellow, blue canopy. And people pull the cart with, with music. And 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 uh, this this year I was I went to New York New York City. We we go right down Fifth Avenue. We're one of the uh, parades that goes down Fifth Avenue every year for I don't know, 30, 40 blocks, and they have a big big parade at the end with this with the stages with music and entertainment and again a free feast there's never a hard christian program without a free feast there's a free feast and displays on yoga and meditation vegetarianism and um so it's just we we, we try to have a lot of a lot of fun and that's something that found it's in new york it's in la it's in detroit it's in atlanta it's in philadelphia coming up at the end of this month it's in in, in london ends up at trafalgar square um, so that's one of the many festivals we have. It's interesting to me how different uh, religious cultures have different expressions. When I first moved to Utah, I saw the Latter-day Saints. They used to do these big dramatic pageants, mm-hmm. and that was an important part of their expression. I noted in your publication that you sent me that uh, devotees, as the publication says, they immerse themselves in an artistic lifestyle of spiritual music, Dance, design, and drama. What what is what part does that play in Krishna culture? Yeah, it's a big part because um, again, it really kind of goes back to our deeper philosophy that I've forgotten God, and my life should be centered around remembering God. Like this, this painting behind me, this it's it's a beautiful Orison style, and it 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 portrays like a Leela of great saints or, or or incarnations of God. You know, God's message and. And I'm looking around my room. It's like our idea is that I've got bookshelves. If they're not religious, they're about religion. I, I like history. I've got a few history books too. But then our music and our our, our homes and everything should be to try to help connect us with God, to try to help us remember God. Because the world's out there trying to get us to forget God. You know, you drive down the, the highway and it's like, buy this, buy that, go here, go there. And as we know, I mean, there's, there's whole sciences developed how to convince us that we need things that we don't. You know, you mentioned earlier, you got to get the new smartphone. Of course, teenagers are particularly prey to their, their promotions, but adults too, you know, and, and that we want to try to change this. So festivals and, and the dance and the drama and the things you, you mentioned, it's we, we, we'd like to go to the temple and, and be so attracted to the beauty in the temple that we're not so attracted to what's going on in the world. And that we, I mean, like like Christian rock, I, I don't know much about Christian rock, but the little bit I've heard, I mean, some of it's like really inspiring. I come from the 70s, right? So rock and roll is kind of like in my blood a little bit. And again, I don't know much about it, but I remember there, there's one song that I was really moved by where, and, and maybe it's a famous group, I don't know, but it was some lyrics like, you know, like, God, please steal my show. Like they're here to hear me. But please, God, this is this. I'm here for you. This is your show, and um, so, so 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 that 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 calling is is there in everything we do, 
And we have our particular culture expression how to do that. We feel that that really should be should be stressed and emphasized. Um, so, our, so our minds can really be focused on on God. Yeah, I, I grew up in the 1970s as well. And uh, I, I remember I, I didn't become a Christian until the 1980s. But my, my early involvement in looking at other religions uh, was... Uh, this kind of countercult, you know, here's orthodoxy and there's heresy. And and one of those groups that was considered heretical uh, with the counterculture, you know, you have these uh, uh, Eastern groups coming in and there was some alarm in the secular world. So you had the rise of the secular anti-cult, you have the Christian countercult. But a lot has changed over 50 years. How has perception uh, of the Hare Krishnas, how has that changed and really become more mainstream over time? Yeah, um, good question. I think part of it is is more people are, you know, with, with with modern communications and things like that, and you know, every week you watch a TV show about CNN traveling around all these exotic places, and I think we're more exposed than we were in the past. That there are worldviews that are, are are very different from ours, and at the same time, very similar depending, you know, what, what kind of lenses we look through. <clears throat> I think, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe Americans have become a little more humble in, in recent years that, you know, I think maybe there's a sense of, I don't know if we have solutions to everything. At least some people think like that. Maybe we should, you know, look outside the box a little bit. I think spiritually, a lot of people, um, you know, sometimes it sets off controversies, but, 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 you know, yoga, it becomes a popular thing. And some people, well, what, what's behind the yoga? You know, and of course you can just do exercises and not cross the line of feeling it's 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 a, offensive to your faith or whatever. But many people, what, what, what's behind that? You know, and there is a spirituality behind that. And what's the meaning there? Um, I would hope part of it is that the Christian movement itself has, has become uh, uh, better suited at kind of presenting ourselves. I mean, you mentioned a child in the 70s. I'll take you back. I was on the Larry King Live show some years ago. His show wasn't quite as famous as yours is, but some people were watching him back in those days. And um, I remember, you know, he he was kind of asking about Krishnas in, in the airports, which you mentioned briefly, which was something we did a lot in the early days. And most of those Hare Krishna devotees in the airports were 20, 22, 25, maybe. We didn't have a lot of old people like myself because it was a new thing. So, you know, generally younger people take up something new easier than older people do. So I think we, we, you know, we brought in some of those problems ourselves and being a little aggressive and stepping on people's toes. And, you know, I remember I publicly apologized on the Larry King show in front of 10 million people or something like that for our excesses. But I also remember, too, I don't know. I don't know which denomination coined the phrase, but I've heard that it's a, it started with Christianity, but we all should use it. Lord, save me from the convert. You know, sometimes, you know, somebody gets some new idea. I mean, like salespeople, right? <laughs> you can you get convinced this is the newest and the best thing, and you really, sometimes you, you push it too hard. So I, I think part of that we brought in ourselves. But I think there's, there's a maturing of uh, people to see, a lot of people that I may be, Christian, but I can learn, you know, I, I mean, I, a lot of us, you know, maybe we're Christian, we have a Muslim doctor, or, you know, a Hindu dentist, or, you know, my daughter's being taught by a Buddhist lady at, at school, 
and and we start to see those people differently and maybe we're more willing to ask well what is it that motivates you in terms of your re- religious identification and you know m- maybe i don't believe what you believe but you seem to be a pretty good person there must be something pretty valuable there so i think a lot of those factors there and of course there's a lot more more uh, indian americans now than there were back then there was the the government changed the laws in 1965 or 66 there were you know, immigration policies against people coming from India. So there's a lot more Hindus of Vaishnava and other traditions, you know, other, what we call Sampradayas. So I think people are more exposed to, to meeting real, you know, real Hindus, real Vaishnavas, real Hare Krishnas. I think that has a difference too. So a lot of factors that they kept contributing. And with the anti-cult people, it's interesting because I, I haven't been in a few years, but I, I started going, those folks have conferences and I started going to those conferences a few years ago dressed as a Hare Krishna devotee, you know, and I'm, pretty much your giveaway when you dress like this, and you know, everybody, you know, you're not hiding anything, because there were a lot of criticisms of us, I said, well, you know, what, what, what have we done, what's wrong, and like any organization, um, you know, whatever part of the political spectrum we're on, we have to admit we've had some political leaders in America that embarrass the heck out of us, and make a lot of mistakes, we've all had religious leaders, you know, we've all had issues with 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 in schools and, you know, so every, there's leadership problems everywhere. And uh, we've certainly had those, our, our, our share of those. So I, you know, would meet with these folks, say, you know, what are your issues with us? Tell us, how can we learn how to do better? And maybe there's some things you, you've, you've overgeneralized. Uh, you've kind of threw us in with, uh, you know, I mean, you know, all anybody from India is the same. Well, sorry, you know, there's a billion plus people over there. Sometimes sometimes people say any religious person is the same. Krishnas and Hare Krishnas and, and Catholics, and, you know, they're all, well, we have some similarities, but you have to look at us individually too. So, um, so and I, I think that, we, I know we definitely learned some things from those dialogues. In fact, there was one member, the head of what was one of the larger um, International Cultic Studies Association, uh, Dr. Michael Langoni. We both attended something called the World Partner Religions a few years ago, and I invited him. Would, would he be on a panel with me, the two of us, two speakers, and we talked about spiritual abuse? Uh, to you know, I mean, we didn't have the whole plenary session, but there's maybe a few thousand people at this meeting. We were one of the many to, to talk about how we all, whether we're you know, mainstream Christian or evangelical Christian or, or one of the different, you know, Jewish communities or, or Buddhist, whatever. We all have to be careful about, about abusive leadership because it, 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 it exists in the world. And, and, um, and, and not to say that, you know, I mean, um, you know, Jesus had one bad apostle, you don't throw the rest of them out because of that, because of the one that, that would be foolish. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I think uh, not only has your organization changed and matured, the culture has as well. And so think, things are always moving along and it's important to, to adjust our perceptions and way of engagement accordingly. One final question, unless you've got something, uh, I'll give you an opportunity to bring up something I might have missed. And that's what do you see as the legacy of the Swami? You, you've been here now for over 50 years and you've uh, certainly developed and changed and perceptions have changed. What does that ongoing legacy look like? Yeah, that's the kind of question. It's good to ask somebody as they get older because it's like, <laughs> more important thing. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I, you know, 
I'm biased because of where I'm sitting and what I'm doing. But I also, you know, I go to the American Academy of Religion. I try to learn about other religions. And I've been doing interfaith dialogue for years. And I, I read a lot of different things. Um, I really feel that in the future years uh, that Bhaktivedanta Swami is going to be seen as one of the really great historical, modern-day historical religious figures. And he brought this tradition uh, of bhakti, of devotion to God from, from India around the world. I mean, we've got, you know, a significant um, communities in Europe and South America and Africa and Russia, Australia. And um, I think he really did kind of, uh, kind of touch people in, in, in an important way and gave them some, some practical and yet very deeply philosophical means. So I, I think the legacy hopefully is going to be that that this Vaishnava tradition was spread around the world. And, and perhaps as Harvey Cox, a, a, a religion professor from Harvard University years ago, said, maybe he reminded people a little bit more about the importance of, of going deep in their own tradition. Because our purpose, I mean, we we are evangelical, if I can borrow that word. We we are a missionary community. We we generally feel that the world's going the wrong direction. People should reconnect with God. People should look and think more carefully about how we're living and the effect it's having on the environment. I'm, I'm very active in an environmental project with an ISKCON to kind of green our temples and go further from there. And I'll put a little plug in, if you don't mind, I don't think it should be controversial, but it, but I think it is for some people. If you want to know one thing you can do to help the environment, folks, please eat lower on the food chain and think about more veggies and less meat because it's not good for us. It's not good for the environment. So, you know, we're trying to do things to, to help across the board and, and hopefully um, we provide a path for, for some people to go very deep in their own spiritual lives and that we can be a contributing member of the larger communities of cultures and faiths and, and spiritual practices to, to help us all kind of refocus on what, what matters most in life. And I think there's a lot of warning signs. You know, you look at what's happening environmentally, there's a lot of signs out there that are becoming more and more apparent uh, you know, we, we need to kind of, we need to reevaluate which way we're going as a society and really think that, um, you know, the world, the world cannot provide what we're trying to consume. You know, we're, we're just living in a, in a pace of life that's just, it's on overdrive, it's overheating the, the planet. And, um, and even you could say in the political systems and all of that. And I mean, I, I read something the other day, I think it's Vic, Vivek Morty. The, the U.S. Surgeon General, I'm sure I, he's of Indian origin, I should have his name right, but he was, he was describing that loneliness is, is, is a, he used the word, it's a pandemic in America these days. You know, we're flooded with, with smartphones and social media, but so many people are feeling lonely. He just says it, it, it's, it's, it's an epidemic uh, for, for here, you know, in teenagers, there's so many issues. We're all aware of all the issues that are there. And I, I think those are, we would say, Iskan would say, Vaishnavism would say, I would say as a humble practitioner, these, these, are, these are messages from God that we're going the wrong way in, in general. I mean, some of us may be very deep in our spiritual practice, but in general as a society, you know, it's, it's materialism on overdrive and it doesn't satisfy people. That was the first step for me. I, I was speaking with a, with a young friend who was a law student at Howard uh, Law School here in, in DC the other day, and we were kind of sharing notes. I'm, about 40 years ahead of him in the timeline. But I remember as a student at Michigan State University, um, kind of trying to figure out what's wrong with the world and how am I supposed to fit in? And my parents came up to visit and we're having kind of like a weekend with another couple friends of theirs. 
And this, this friend of my father's uh, told me, he said, um, he said, you know, you should really understand these are the best years of your life and take advantage of them. And he was probably 50. I was, you know, 19 or 20. And I remember thinking, I'm not really happy at this stage of my life. And everybody's telling me that I need to go to college to get a degree, to get a job, to make money, to have a wife and a house and have kids. Everything you have, sir, you know, this man was talking to me. I should work hard to get everything you have. And you're telling me that you were happiest when you were my age and you didn't have any of these things. And if I'm honest, I'm not happy now. So, you know, something's wrong in this in this formula here. And that's, and you know, you mentioned you became a Christian in the 80s. So at some point in time, you also had an experience like that. There's something missing. And I think as, 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 people of a of religious faith and followers of, of, of great religious teachers and representatives of God, you know, we really have kind of responsibility to try to share that message with people. I love going to our festivals for some reason. Sometimes I meet some really wonderful Christian people that in their own enthusiasm to tell people about Jesus come to our festivals. And, you know, sometimes thinking we got to save these people from this Krishna stuff, which is going the wrong way. But I'm, I'm like, I mean, sometimes people are frankly a little obnoxious and aggressive, but, you know, they try to disrupt. But a lot of people that are there that spread the, the message of Jesus. And I always feel like, wow, you know, Lord, let me become so deep in my faith in you that I feel comfortable going out and spending all day Saturday trying to tell people, you know, about about God and as I understand it. So I think that's that's the legacy. Hopefully we can contribute to in one of our, 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 our texts that says, we hope to see a, a re-spiritualization of human society, that human life really is meant first and foremost for, for spiritual growth. It's not meant to consume, consume, consume. Um, I, I read something, maybe, maybe end with this, um, John, that um, there was an article in the paper today about, um, they were talking about, oh, students in college, how people that have studied humanities According to some recent poll, they're much more likely to regret their career choice than, than STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. And then it talked about, then their primary measurement was, inside they had a big chart about if you study, religion was the, the bottom of the chart. It was under co, um, cos, whatever's for cosmetic, whatever the proper word is, if you're a beautician or something. They make less money if you get a degree in religion. And it had this old chart going up and the top was engineering or something like that. But I was thinking, okay, great. You can make more money, but is that the only measure? There's a lot of very unhappy rich people out there. So why are we stressing it? And if people, you know, people study humanities because that's how you learn how to think and you study history and you study philosophy and all the great things that help people be thinking people as opposed to just pr producing agents. You know, not that that's all that happens from people that study STEM, but they don't train you how to think. They don't train you how to think about why am I here and why do, why do people have to grow old? Why do people have to suffer? Why do people have to die? Why is there war? Why is there racism in the world? These are, we feel, these are the questions that are meant to stimulate us into thinking about, you know, is there another purpose for this life other than trying to squeeze out a few years, which, of course, Christians understand this more to life, but, you know, many people don't, and it's it's a shame. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think anybody in any tradition can lose sight of uh, the important things and the essence of what their tra tradition is about, and, and materialism is so enticing and yet so fleeting at the same time, so I appreciate that. 
I like that. Enticing and fleeting at the same time. I'm, I'm going to remember that. <laughs> well, this has been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate it. We had talked before we started recording about the possibility of doing some other things. And uh, I hope we can pursue that. And I hope you'll come back and, and we can continue to have these kinds of conversations. I'd be happy to. And thank you for having me, John. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. Again, my guest today, I'm going to take another stab at getting the name correctly, Anutama. Anutama, there we go, Das. And you can look in the program notes and find his bio. You can find links to the ISKCON website and a, a helpful magazine uh, that we've used as kind of an outline today where you can get more information about what ISKCON is all about. I would like to thank my listeners and my viewers. Until the next episode.